Uh, one of the things Corey and I love to do is go skiing. I love pretty much everything about it. I love the cool, crisp mountain air. I love the way that the snow dampens the sound up there and kind of just makes it like a sanctuary. And I love, maybe most of all, going fast and the feeling of flying with the wind going through my, my face. Uh, not through the goggles or anything. But learning to ski is a completely different endeavor. Skiing, let's just face it, is not a natural thing. And I didn't learn to ski till I was 18. Now, I have a younger brother who's five years younger, and you can imagine I tormented him a lot growing up. Now, when I turned 18, and he was 13, he was already a good skier, uh, and he said, well, I'll teach you how. So we do the bunny slope thing, and he says, you know, it's going to be a lot easier, actually, to, to go up to a steeper area. Uh, it'll be easier to learn how to turn. So he takes me up this chair where there is no other way down than black diamonds. And as he snickers, you know, he, he's teaching me little things like, okay, well, you know, put your weight on this ski and move your hips that way. And, and but your shoulders, you want to keep downhill and bend your knees, but not too much. And lean forward, but not too much. Fall, repeat. Right? And eventually, I made it down the hill. I mean, I'm standing here, aren't I? But, but I wasn't skiing down the hill. Uh, not, not even close. I tried to follow the little techniques that he gave me. I tried to string the little lessons together. But true skiing only comes when you put it together in such a way that it's a fluid motion. True skiing happens when you can stop thinking about all the little technical details and you become one with those skis and boots and just fly down the hill. It opens up a whole new world of possibilities that at first doesn't even seem possible. Well, in the same way, there's a difference between trying to follow the religious rules of the Christian life and actually living a life of trust in Jesus. Human beings have always tried to relate to God. There are myriad religions that pop up with their list of rules and regulations and things you can do to get closer to God. Even Israel, the people of God, uh, the ones that he originally chose to be his missionaries to the world, even they had a problem with putting techniques and, and, and right deeds before a relationship with God. Well, then something happened, or rather, someone happened. In the first century, God did a drastic new move in his mission to save us. He came to earth as a man, actually as a baby, Jesus of Nazareth in the first century A.D. And when Jesus got into his early 30s, he began teaching. He was teaching and proclaiming the good news that a new reality is breaking into our world. He called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the synonymous terms. And he said that this new reality is what the world has always been waiting for. It's what the Jewish religion had always been talking about. It's a reality where God's presence and quality of life are available to every man, woman, and child. You don't have to be super special. He, he just said, hey, everyone who is poor in spirit, everyone who is mourning over the state of your soul, over the state of the world, everyone who is humble about who they really are, and who hunger and thirst for the world to be made right, and who, who are pure in heart and who are peacemakers, and even those who have been persecuted for trying to follow Jesus, those are the types of people that are included in this kingdom. And I know it sounds somewhat crazy, but when you get the hang of it, when you get the hang of it, you find that it's actually the way to true freedom in life. So Jesus taught about this vision of the new life of the kingdom and what we can expect in it. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. 
This sermon begins with pure grace. He reminds us uh, that all are invited in. If you just have a a repentant stance, if you just say, I I don't have it all together, I want to follow you. He reminds us also that he's not starting something new, not a new cult or a new religion or new laws. He's he's trying to regain and and show the ethic or, or God's heart behind the original laws. So, for example, where people were heard that they shouldn't murder, well, Jesus says, yeah, that's great, but, but just not murdering is not really what God had in mind. He wants us to be actively reconciled to other people. All right? And he said, yeah, well, you've heard you shouldn't commit adultery. That's kind of a no-brainer. But I, but I want you to have healthy sexual relationships to where you're not in bondage to lust and, and, and objectifying the opposite sex for your own pleasure. I want you to be free and healthy in all these relationships. Jesus was teaching us to move away from rigid techniques of the law to experience the life-giving freedom of the gospel or new life. He's teaching us to really ski, if you will, not just get down the mountain. Now, much of Matthew 5 deals with our relationships to one another. It deals with our attitude and our behavior. But Jesus knows, he's on to something. He knows that if... We do all the right things that Matthew 5 talks about. It's still possible to be far from God. So in chapter 6, Jesus is going to deal with the next level. He's going to deal with our motives. He's going to ask us to consider who is our audience? Who are we living for? Who are we doing all this stuff for? Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and 16 through 18. So Jesus is continuing on in his sermon. He says, Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. They stand on the street corners in the synagogue so that they will be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be noticed by men. Truly, I say to you, they've got the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and close the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They actually neglect their appearance, so they'll be noticed by people when they're fasting. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your Father, who's in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it is good news. And I pray that you would reveal to us today the good news in this message, Lord, and that you would set us free from the the trap and the temptation of living for other people's applause rather than your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first, if you had your Bibles open there, you'll notice that, hey, he skipped the Lord's Prayer. That's like my favorite part. Well, for the next two weeks in a row, we're going to be devoting that time to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer has a very special place in the center of Matthew's Gospel. But for this week, we're going to uh, look at the issue of motives and audiences as disciples. 
And in verse 1, Jesus gives us a warning, and then he gives us three illustrations. The illustrations about giving to the poor, about prayer, and about fasting. And these illustrations help flesh out his warning. So let's explore the first chapter, uh, the first verse in chapter 6. Beware. I know, it's on signs all over the place. Beware of this, beware of dog, beware. And you kind of scoff at it most of the time. The Greek word behind this, beware, carries with it the idea of constant vigilance. Think about this. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is only about ten minutes if you read it all the way through, right? In this short but impactful sermon, he says to be constantly vigilant about this temptation, this particular thing. So that tells me it's kind of important. Jesus emphasizes that we should be constantly vigilant about the temptation to practice our righteousness or our Christ-likeness so that others will see us. Otherwise, we have no reward with our Father in heaven. Well, I I know maybe what you're thinking. I I know what I was thinking when I read this. This is contradictory, isn't it? Just in the last chapter, in chapter 5, it says, Let your light shine before people that they may see your good works, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And here it says, Not let your works be seen by other people. What's that all about? Well, it it comes down to our motives. I said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it a lot. If we live Sermon on the Mount lives, God will use those lives to absolutely change the world. Can you imagine what it would be like if everyone, or even just the church, was living Sermon on the Mount lives? How that would drastically change the world? There are all kinds of reasons to live Sermon on the Mount lives. Two of them, uh, here's one. Uh, It's simply the best way anybody, philosopher, religious leader, anybody has ever come up with how to live. Uh, Even the great leaders like like Gandhi um, so appreciated the Sermon on the Mount that they tried tried and live it. The other reason is that Jesus who is our Lord, and we talk a lot about how nice He is and how loving He is, and that's all true, but He's also like God, and He tells us to live this way, so that's another great reason uh, He commands us to. Those are two great reasons, and they are absolutely true, but they're both kind of religious reasons. I think that the reason the Sermon on the Mount, um, the, the reason we ought to live Sermon on the Mount lives, or the reason we should do these works of righteousness can be found in the clue of one word. That word is Father. Father. Matthew 5 has 48 verses. And the word Father is mentioned about three times. But in the first 18 verses of chapter 6 alone, God is referred to as Father a whopping 10 times. We are to live this new Sermon on the Mount life because it's a life of right relatedness to our Father. Not a distant and angry God. Not someone that we have to suck up to or earn approval from. But the Father of the prodigal Son who awaits us with arms wide open. And when we live for our Father who gives us life, who died for us, who desires a deep relationship with us, He rewards us. Amen? Come on now. Now, 
That brings us to another issue. This whole deal of rewards. The whole deal of rewards. Let's face it. I mean, we live in a total reward-oriented culture. If you do really well at work, you get a bonus. Or you get employee of the month. Um, When you perform um, in athletics, or you graduate, or whatever, you get... A reward. Uh, you get uh, a pat on your back when it's your birthday for staying alive another year. You get a reward. We've even figured out how to get a reward on Jesus' birthday. I mean, like, I get more presents on his birthday than my own. We've, um, we also live in a self-esteem culture. So now it's not good enough for like first, second, and third place. If you ever like children's athletics, it used to be like one, two, three, you got an award. Now you get like fourth place and seventh place and tenth place and then the poor kid that's like twelfth place at least you get honorary mention right or like participation certificate not against that I'm just saying that uh, (laughs) I'm saying that our reward driven culture tells us two things one is you have to perform to get the reward and two is since everybody's getting them they're kind of trivial and don't mean that much all right So we read this statement by Jesus about getting a reward from our Father, and we can't help but read it through the lens of our culture. That rewards are performance-based, and they're kind of cheesy sometimes, right? What reward does the Father give us? A better trophy than the world gives us? Does He give us a, a certificate that does not deteriorate? Or do we have to earn this reward? And because we don't really know what to do with this reward language by the Father, we pretend we're too mature for rewards, don't we? We exalt the ideal of altruism in our culture. The idea that that we ought to do things without any thought of ourselves or any thought of reward. That's very prevalent in the United States, some places in Western Europe, Canada to a degree, but it's isolated to those places. I'm not sure if you recognize that. But that altruistic ideal is kind of an Americanish thing, a Western thing. And of course, if you're really good at being altruistic, what happens? You get on Oprah, or you get a Pulitzer Prize, or I mean a Nobel Prize, right? And so you get exalted anyway for being altruistic. Maybe you get a book deal on the side too. So, so here's, here's what I think about all this. First, I think, and I think the Bible will communicate this, that we are all made to please someone. We're hardwired for reward. We cannot escape it. God made us that way. Is there anyone here that doesn't like getting rewarded sometimes? Right? I was sharing with our Bible study on Wednesday that Stella, our two-year-old, has a new, newish morning habit. And she, I'll be up before her in my study, and she'll get dressed upstairs with mom, and she'll come down the stairs. The first thing she does is open my door and come in, and she'll stand in front of me and put her chin like this and looking at her outfit. And she will stand there until I say, Stella, you look so beautiful today. And I've learned, like, I'm colorblind, you know, but I'm like, oh, I see that your shirt matches your flip-flops and your shorts and you're all matched. And I mean, that means a lot to her. And at this point, at two years old, she doesn't really do that to other people. She cares what daddy's going to say about her. She's wired to do that. I think it's kind of healthy. And I think it's healthy that I love to tell her how beautiful she is and how much I love her. Stella, you look so beautiful. Our Father created us with a desire for Him. He loves to let us know that we are loved. So, more on that reward in a minute. You just 
put that up in your memory bank. But this brings me kind of to my second point. I think that this altruism idea or ideal, I think it's a delusion. I really do. I don't think it's possible for anybody to do anything with a 100% pure motive. Right, I'm going out of limb. You can talk to me after service if you think, no, I, I can. <laughs> but I, I think that every one of us, to some degree, has mixed motives, if we really are honest in our hearts, for everything we do. I pray, I've got this prayer from Martin Luther that I pray before I get up here every week that it would be more about God and more about you than it is about me. But I, I, want, you to, I want you to like what I say. I want you to accept me, Right? I mean, that's just the mixed motives. I, I can even confess that, that 80% of, of my doing this is probably all pure motives. It's all good, but there's 20 or 15 or 17%. That is selfish. Right? I don't think we can do things with 100% pure motives. In fact, even the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, he even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he claims not to be a good judge of his own heart. He'll say, you know, I think I'm on the right page, but I don't even judge myself. I leave that to God. Because I know how mixed up and duplicitous my heart is. We're so affected by sin and doubt that whatever we do, no matter how good, it's done with mixed motives. And... That sounds like, when you can say that, that's a healthy thing to confess. Because it sounds a lot like being poor in spirit. And last I checked, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in his teaching, Jesus is giving us three illustrations of how this life can look. Uh, there are three religious activities that he expects disciples to be engaged in. Generous giving and prayer and fasting. And these are three illustrations. Not an exhaustive list, okay? And they're illustrations of, of how we may get our motives in the Christian life out of whack. They are not there to give us the theology of giving and prayer and fasting. So, while giving and prayer and fasting are important church topics and biblical topics and theological topics, I'm not going to flesh them out in that light this evening. What we're going to be focused on is how Jesus uses those things as illustrations to talk about our motives. So to paint a vivid picture here, Jesus draws on the language of drama and theater. Before the, Rain, uh, the Romans conquered Palestine, Alexander the Great and the Greeks uh, took it over. And Alexander had a master plan that whatever country or region he took over, he was going to turn it into a Greek place. And so he called that Hellenization. And so everywhere he went, he would, he would create uh, libraries and, and theaters and gymnasiums and arenas. Uh, that's why you have like an Alexandria in Egypt. And what's all, it's named after Alexander. There's a great library, Greek library there. So my point being that just a few miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, there's this city of Sephorus. And there was a massive theater there. A Greek theater. And these theaters would have been well known to Jesus and his peers. And the actors in these theaters were called hypocrites, from which we get hypocrite. Hypocrites or actors, were all male. And they would play multiple parts, including female parts. And the way that they would change characters, they would put different masks on. 
All right, so they play multiple parts. The great actors, the, the hupocriti, studied their subjects inside and out. Think of um, like Daniel Day-Lewis, how he, he so gets into characters, right? They can function perfectly in their character's world. And they do all of this for applause. So far, scholars are unanimous in believing that Jesus is the first person, the first teacher, to ever take this hypocrite idea and turn it into uh, something to teach about. The, the term hypocrite comes from that, or duplicity of heart. He's the first one to take that actor title and turn it into something of saying that somebody is two-faced. All right? He says that doing the good deeds of, in God's name, doing good deeds in God's name is not the whole point. Especially if you're doing good deeds in God's name so that your religious buddies will just pat you on the back. If reward is what you're seeking and the pat on the back from your peers, then that's all you get. Think Princess Leia and Han in the first Star Wars, remember? If money's all you want, that's all you get. Okay, come on. Had to bust that out. Um, (laughs) but doing things in God's name so that people applaud you and pat you on the back is actually being hypocritical it's not really living in reality pats on the back is the reward of the world that's passing away but Christianity, faith in Christ is about reality it's about living in the world God's world So we can take that idea and apply it not only to giving to the poor and prayer and fasting, but going to church and preaching and leading worship and working with children and volunteering in the community and going to your Bible study and praying great prayers with people. See, we can apply it to all the aspects of Christian life. And I think there's two traps that we really need to watch out for. First of all is the trap of addiction to the praises of other people. I'm not saying, hear this, I'm not saying that encouragement is bad. In fact, I am saying that the Bible commands us to encourage one another, okay? So encouragement is not bad, it is good. Nor am I saying that it is bad to receive applause, okay? So when someone encourages you for being like Christ, say thank you. You don't have to deflect and all that stuff. So it's not bad to receive praise, it's not bad to give praise, What I believe Jesus is saying is that if our primary motive for doing good is to get praise, then that's a problem. Our primary motive for living like Christ should be the praise of God, the glory of God. It's an addictive trap to live for the applause of others. It robs us of greater joy. And if that reward is really what we're after, the applause of others, then God... In his fairness, he gives it to us. He gives it to us. The second trap is the trap of self-righteousness, right? So maybe I do things and I don't really care what other people think about me because I'm so full of myself. I just care how I feel about how I did. And you can even take these illustrations, these examples of, okay, so I'm not going to sound a trumpet before me when I give to the poor. 
But uh, I could be real proud that when I gave that dollar to that guy, I had my left hand in my pocket. And you can get all legalistic about this stuff. That's totally missing the point of Jesus' illustration. Like, oh, I, pr- I actually have a closet in my house, and I go in there and close the door, and I feel really good about that. I mean, Jesus' illustrations here about prayer closets, and about anointing your head when you fast, and about um, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's saying to beware of doing these things for the applause of other people. But we also need to be aware of doing these things just to feel great about ourselves. <laughs> it's about our heart. It's about our heart. Both traps of seeking the applause of others and the applause of ourselves means one thing, that we're not seeking the applause of God first and His kingdom. And that's a grave mistake. I think we're missing the mark there. Now, you need to hear this. Hear this. Wake up. Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying, don't seek a reward for doing good. He is saying, He is saying, seek a reward from God and not people. Okay? It's all about our audience. It's all about our audience. Are we living for God? Are we living related to God? Living to love and be loved by God? Or are we living to impress people? I found something very interesting in studying for this message. When Jesus talks about rewards in this text, he uses two different words. When he talks about the rewards that people get when they seek others' applause, he uses this Greek word, um, mythos. Or misthos, misthos, and that is that word is the is the word used for um, like getting a paycheck, like getting what you deserve for uh, goods and services rendered. Okay, it's like I, I work eight hours, I get this much money, uh, I get misthos. Okay, but when Jesus speaks of our reward from the Father, he uses the Greek word apodidomi, which also has a marketplace meaning. But check this out: the interesting thing about the Father's apodidomi or his reward to us is that by the first century. By the time Jesus is teaching, it, it had taken a special meaning among the Jews. And it's associated with God's coming to his people to restore creation, to make all things new. It's associated with salvation and God's very presence. So when, when you do things to please other people, you get misthos. You get, I want pats on the back, I get pats on the back. It's a one-two exchange. But when I, when I seek the reward of God, I get apodidomy. I get, the, the reward isn't a better trophy or a better certificate. It's God's very redeeming, salvific presence in my life. It means he, be, he begins not only to reveal himself to me and to be present in my life, but he gets to, he uses us to help restore creation, to be reflections of his kingdom. You actually get dignified life and work. That's the reward. That's the epitome that the Father wants to give us. That's awesome. Guys, that's why I wake up. That's why I wake up. Because that's the life worth living. So I want to argue that Jesus isn't saying do good things because the Father will give you a better trophy. Nor is he saying live a good life because you can earn salvation or earn his presence. What I am saying is that the Father is already in the process of making things new. He has already come near. He's already died for us. And he waits with open arms for us to come home. For us to receive, not earn. 
the great reward of knowing how much he loves us. The Apostle Paul, incredible man. Before he became a disciple of Jesus, he was a Jewish scholar, a a devout religious man. Um, You heard Ian read earlier his whole pedigree of all the great stuff he could have boasted about. He had every reason to have confidence in his religious ability. He was the man. He was like a megachurch pastor with lots of book deals and thousands of followers on his blog. He did all the right things, loved by all the right people. But after meeting Jesus, something happened. He counted all those accolades as dog dung, as Eugene Peterson says. Rubbish. In light of knowing Christ and knowing Him crucified. If you come to church, especially come here, you're going to hear all the time how much God loves you. You're going to hear that all the time. How your Father in Heaven died for you. How He desires to lavish you with love. But it's one thing to believe those words or to hear them come out of my mouth or, or sing them off the thing. And it's another thing to move it the 15 inches to our hearts. There's, I don't know what's going on in me, in us. There's a barrier from really embracing how loved you are. And so we doubt And we think that we need to look out for ourselves. We need to make sure that somebody notices us. Otherwise, we might get lost in the shuffle. So how is it that we're to live this teaching out without being hypocrites? How is it then that I can stand up here and preach without being hypocritical, knowing that I have mixed motives? Or you showing up at church knowing that you have mixed motives I think this is the only way forward. I normally don't have three-point sermons, but here they are real quick. One, we confess our mixed motives. You just got to be real with it. We don't stop doing what's right just because we don't feel like we're 100% pure behind it. We would never do anything, folks. We're never going to be pure 100% until Christ comes back and does something magical. You know what I'm saying? So we would be paralyzed. We'd never do anything Okay, but what we can do to not be hypocritical about it is to be real about why we do things. That's a start. And I don't mean just real with God, but I mean real with each other too. Because when you're real with me and I'm real with you, it gives us permission to take the masks off. Okay? Second thing is we can pray. We can pray to be able to receive more of God's love. I'm convinced more and more every day that it's not going to be a good sermon or a great song or the right technique that's going to make us get this. what, What this stuff does, I believe, is allows space for God to do his work in us. Space for the Spirit to work. And so one of the things, if I'm if I'm worried about my mixed motives, I can pray. We can pray that God would would cause us to pursue him more than other people. That God would help us receive his love. And the third thing I think that really helps is to regularly, regularly, daily, twice daily, give thanks. Give thanks. We can regularly reflect on God's faithfulness and generosity, yes, in becoming human and dying for us and being raised from the dead and reigning over us, yes, but also, also, 
a warm, sunny Bellingham day. How rare and wonderful is that? We can rejoice over the hug of someone who we care about. We can rejoice over food on our table and a meal shared with other people. We can rejoice in being part of this community of faith, walking together. We can rejoice in all of the things that we say are little, that are gifts from the living God. And when we develop that spirit of thanksgiving, we're confronted with His love in every intersection there.